Several years ago, uh, man, probably six, six or eight years ago, we were on a mission trip with our high schoolers. Spring break, we were connected to Oceanside, California, and we were going every other year there helping a church plant. And when we go on a high school mission trip, it is, I mean, it's sun up to sundown work. These, those kids work hard. We try to carve out a day where we can go and, and explore the city or do something there. So we were in Oceanside, close to San Diego. We went to church on a Sunday, and the, the church pastor said, hey, why don't you use Sunday afternoon as kind of your, your, your getaway fun day, and we'll work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We said, great. So we got in the vans. We went down to La Jolla, a uh, little beach community north of San Diego, and we gave the kids a couple of options. Hey, you can shop in the little beach town here, or you can uh, get in a kayak, and you can go kayak in the coves and around the caves, not in the caves, but around in La Jolla. Now, if you've been here before, you know the ocean frightens me. It was a five-year-old experience with Jaws that I had as a kid. My parents went, hey, watch this. We're going to go do something. And like, since that day, I'm like, why would I ever go in the ocean? I don't invite sharks into my house. I wouldn't go into theirs. And, but we're there, and it's kind of a first-time experience. And I thought, you know, there's going to be some kids that are going to go, I don't want to do it. And they ought to have the experience, but I, I, can't, I can't tell them you do it. And I'm not going to. So I said, I'm, I'm going to do it. I may never do it again, but at least I can say in the future, oh, yeah, I've done it before. You should do it. So we went, had a group of kids, and then we put on the, the wetsuit, like, you know, a little half wetsuit. We go out, and I'm going to be honest, like, I, I'm not a big fan of this idea. I'm just doing it because I feel like I need to, you know, lead. It's in March in the Pacific Ocean. I know it's going to be freezing cold. It takes me, like, 20 minutes to get into a swimming pool because of the cold. Like, eh. And I'm like, okay, we're going to do it. And I'm looking. We've got, the, we've got our kayaks. And there's the sharks out there. I don't see them, but I know they're there. Probably going to drown. And the waves are crashing into the beach. And I'm looking at these other kayaks that are out there and people in there. And they, they're getting their kayaks. and They're kind of launching them in. And they're paddling as hard as they can to, to get over the waves that are crashing into the beach so they can get out where it's a little bit calmer. And in my mind, I'm thinking, let's just go with the flow. The water is saying, stay here. Like, it's... It's moving us this way. Why, why fight? Fighting the ocean's dumb, but I'm in. And I'm, 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 a, little, I'm a little nervous. So as we're talking, we, we've got a group of, you know, 20 high schoolers down there. And so I said, hey, who's kayaked? Who's kayaked before? And we had a guy who's a Boy Scout on his way to Eagle Scout. His name was Adriel. And Adriel said, I've kayaked tons of times. And I said, Adriel, we're going to be partners. We're going to be friends. And he said, well, what about the small ninth grade girl? And I said, every man for himself, Adriel. <laughs> so we get in. <laughs> now, here's the true story. We get in, and, the, and I, when, when he said, I've done this before, and I know Adriel. And I know, I, he didn't say, I'm an Eagle Scout. I just know he's an Eagle Scout. All of a sudden, my level of comfortability started to, to rise. I, I knew, I knew deep down inside I wasn't going to drown we probably even have life jackets on. I knew deep down inside there were not, nobody's going to get eaten by sharks. I, the, the company, you know, if like every 10th person went out and drowned or got eaten by a shark, they wouldn't be kayaking. I mean, I, the facts were there. I know it's totally safe. But when someone I knew and someone I trusted, who was almost an Eagle Scout, said, I've kayaked a ton of times, all of a sudden my comfortability level got much higher because there was someone that I trusted. Now, the end of the story is we got in the kayak, and I said, so you've done this a bunch? He said, yeah, like, I haven't done since third grade, but I was, what? Like, where are you? <laughs> what? All of a sudden, it got panicky again, but 
But at that moment when I'm, when I'm thinking, I got an Eagle Scout, and I got a guy who can take care of me, I got more comfortable in that. Here's the thing, that, that's true about a lot of our relationships. You, you, it's, it's more important, you could care less about what somebody knows as, as you would, as how much you trust them. Does that make sense? I mean, let me give you an example. If you're going to a doctor, and you have a doctor who you know, you see all of the uh, degrees on his wall, you go, that guy went to the best medical school in the country. But you sit down with him, and you feel like you're not getting his full attention. You feel like he's not really caring, that he's kind of just blowing through. He may be so good at what he does that he doesn't even have to spend time with you. He just knows. But you feel like you're not getting the attention. You feel like, I don't know if I can trust this guy. I don't know if he's really even listening to me. And you've got another doctor that like went to like Howard Payne, where I went. And you're like, I've never even heard of that place. But he listens to you, and he develops trust in you, and he's heard you, and he's feeding back. And most of us are going to choose the doctor that we trust over the doctor that has all, all of the stuff. A lot of us will go to a car salesman who sells us a car that costs more because we trust him. We trust that we're getting a good deal even though it costs more than the guy that seems a little shady that we don't know that took $2,000 off the car. Now some of us are, are, are just so cheap we'll go to the $2,000 deal. But but for a lot of us, we go, man, trust matters in my relationships with people. Well, that's also true of God. If you're going to grow spiritually, and we're talking about growing up in the next six weeks, just how do I walk forward? The foundation of, of, of spiritual growth starts with faith. It starts with trusting God. You can only go so far in your faith on what you know about God. Right? You, you might work with somebody like that. You look at their life, and they know the Bible better than you do. And you're like, you're like, how is this happening? Like, I look at his life, I don't, I don't see that he's walking with Jesus at all, but man, he knows more than I do. Because it's head knowledge, but he's never started a life, a spiritual life, that was driven by trust and by faith in God. And once you have faith, once you have inside the relationship, hey, I will trust God, all of a sudden, the world begins to change. It begins to look a little bit different. When you imagine, imagine what your life would be like if you just had a big, big, not afraid type faith. Doesn't mean that bad things weren't going to happen, but you knew that even when bad things happened, you knew that God was in control. You knew that in spite of whatever was unknown, whatever looked scary, that God was working towards what Romans tells us, working towards the good to those called according to his purpose. If your faith was so big that when God said, hey, I want you to move your family to Brazil, go on missions, quit your job, your faith was so big that if he called, if that's our biggest fear, we're like, I don't know if he, but if he called that you'd go, you know what? We're all in. The type of big faith that God said, and you knew it was God, and God said, you know what? I want you to give your car to that family that needs it. That you'd go, okay, we're all in. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how the finances are going to work out. I don't know what my, I don't know what my in-laws are going to think about taking the family to Brazil and moving there. But God, my faith in you is so transformatively big in my life that whatever you say, I'm all in. And I, I'm not afraid of it. I don't doubt, I'm not scared, because you always show up. 
That'd be a game-changing faith. It would change, it would change everything about your life. There's, there's two guys. One guy's name was Dana Bowman. The other one was Jose Aguion. They were a part of the Golden Knights. It was an army parachute team. And they would, they do things at stunt shows and air shows and things like that. Well, they had a stunt that they were doing called the, the Diamond Track. These guys, 3,500 feet up in the air. They're flying 150 miles an hour towards each other. And the stunt is they're supposed to pass each other at 150 miles an hour within about 20 feet of one another. Done it over 50 times, these two guys together. And one tragic day, as they were doing this stunt, Jose Aguillon realized as they were coming towards each other that they were going to collide and not miss each other. And he reached out his arm to try to push off, to try to save their life. And it was such a speed that his arm, when he reached off, actually cut Bowman's legs off, severed them. His parachute deployed. He floated to the ground, wakes up in the hospital, finds out that his partner, uh, Jose, had, had died in the accident. In the midst of recovering, is now a, 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 a double amputee. I, guess, I mean, it wasn't an amputee like that, but a guy that now has no legs. The army kicked him out. You know, I mean, he's not going to be a soldier. His wife left him. And the doctors told him, your life will never be the same. You, you, you'll recover, you'll live, but you'll never live a life like you planned. And what, what Dave Bowman, Dana Bowman said was this. He said, I was listening to all these people giving me all this down news. And he said, I'm a Christian. I believe in a big God. And I have faith that God is going to take my circumstances and change them. That, that's a guy with a big faith. If you lost both of your legs today and your spouse left you and your job fired you, most of us would not approach life as this is no big deal because I have faith in God. That was Dana Bowman's faith. And six months after that accident, he was parachuting again. Nine months after his accident, he had been re-enlisted back into the army. Now he travels and speaks. He snow skis, he water skis, he scuba dives, he flies planes, flies helicopters, and races motorcycles. Life is different. Because he had this, this mindset of faith and trust that, you know what? God is not done with me. I serve a God who does big things despite tragic circumstances. So what would your life look like if your faith was that big? No fear. Relentless. I'm trusting the Lord. We're going to look in Matthew in a second. Before we do, let's get a little bit of context because what I want you to understand is for you and your discipleship journey, but as you walk with your kids this week, is that God is, has been, since the beginning of time and even today, in the process of you growing your faith to a big faith. You realize as you go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that, that the biggest issue there, the fall of man, sin entered the world, because two people ultimately didn't trust God. That's basically what it was, right? God said, you got everything. Hey, here's this tree in the center of the garden. It's called the tree of uh, good and evil. Don't eat from it and everything will be fine. If you'll just avoid this, all good. And Adam and Eve, deceived by Satan, went, you know what? Do we really trust God? 
Do we, do we really think God is giving us the best? Do we really think he's got our best interest in mind? And they chose not to trust God and to trust the serpent, and everything changed. God wanted them to have faith. You go a little bit further into history, towards us, you find God in the country of Israel. He's established Israel for the purpose of revealing himself to the rest of the world. And you realize, like, God didn't, like, start with Israel, like, hey, Israel, you're a nation, great. Now, here's the Ten Commandments. Here's what you do. He started with them building trust. Before they even got the Ten Commandments, he rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. You can read this through the book, second book in the Bible called the Exodus. And he goes in and he does some things, ten different miracles. They call them the ten plagues. They weren't miracles for the Egyptians. They were plagues for the Egyptians, but they were miracles for the Jews. Then which, you know what? We've got a big God who's going to take care of us. And then when they get out of slavery and they're leaving, and then they, they're headed towards the promised land, they get pinned in against the Red Sea, and, and here comes the Egyptian army. And what does God do? God says, watch this, guys. I'm going to show up because you can trust me. When I said that you're going to be my people, and I said that I'm not going to leave you, I got this. And he parts the Red Sea, and they cross on dry ground. The Egyptians come through. God closes up the sea, and their enemies are vanquished. It was only after multiple instances where God went, listen, you can trust me. I'm God. I've got your back. I'm going to take care of you. Only after those things did he say, now that you trust me, let me give you some rules on how to make life best, how to live life best. And that's when the law came. The law came after relationship. The law came after the people should have been able to trust God. Then you go into the New Testament. And what we find in the New Testament is that God is concerned about growing our faith. Because here's the deal. We think, and there's truth to this, we think obedience matters, and it does. But you realize your obedience, your teenager's obedience, is determined by the amount of faith they have. It's determined by the amount of trust they have. Again, most of us in here would not argue if the Bible's true or not. We would go, oh yeah, I believe the Bible's true. The only reason why we don't live it, if we say it's true, is because there's a part of us that doesn't quite trust God. God, I know you say that I'm supposed to turn my finances over to you. I know that's true. God, I just don't absolutely trust you. God, I know that you love my kids more than I do. But I have all this anxiety about their future and what they're going to do. Because you know what? Because God, ultimately there's a piece of me there's, there's some, that doesn't quite have the faith in your hand of protection and provision that I need. Obedience is determined by faith. And so while we want to be obedient and follow the Lord, we want our kids to be obedient and follow the Lord, what I want us to understand is this, this principle that you're going to see in the YAP and you're going to see several times up on here. It's this. It's the foundation of how much you grow in your relationship is based on your trust. The bigger the faith, the bigger the obedience. The bigger the trust, the bigger the growth. And we're going to see that over the next several weeks as we journey through that. This is kind of the foundation. But I want you to go over to Matthew chapter 8 because I want you to see a pretty incredible passage. We're going we're gonna to journey through this story. And we're going to see something about Jesus that only happens here in all of the New Testament. I want you to start in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And we're just going to kind of read each verse at a time. And I'll give you a little bit of commentary. Matthew 8, 5. Jesus walking with his disciples. 
And it says, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. So stop there. A centurion's a Roman soldier. He was a Roman soldier who had a hundred other soldiers at his beck and call. Now, if you go into Jesus' day, the Jerusalem and Israel, it is all under Roman rule. And so the Romans worship pagan gods. They worship Zeus. They, they, they are not interested in the God of the Israelites. The Romans that are there in Jerusalem, they're soldiers. They are marketplace maybe. But they, they, they are the ruling authority that don't really care about the Jewish custom. They don't care about the Jewish religion. And there's a tension that exists between these two. And so Jesus and his disciples, you can just imagine they're walking down the street and they see a centurion and he probably doesn't have all 100 soldiers with him. He's probably got some other guys with him and they're, they're in their military garb and they're walking towards Jesus and, and most people are just trying not to make eye contact with him because we don't want a discussion. You know, it's, it's like you, know, you slow down when you see the cops. You know, the people across the other side of the road. I don't want to mess with the centurion. His disciples are going and Jesus is talking. A couple of them are probably noticing and they notice the centurion and a couple of his guys have, are starting to cross the street. And they're coming towards Jesus and the disciples. The disciples that notice are, again, I'm theologically imagining here, not, you know, not making eye contact, let's just mind our own business. And as they look up, they realize the centurion is locked onto Jesus. And he's coming towards Jesus. They start thinking, oh, great. What's happened? You know, are we in trouble? These guys can make people disappear. Like, what, 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 what did you guys do? Verse 6, the centurion speaks. It's interesting. He says, Lord, to Jesus, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, most Jews, most Jews who heard that would have went, cool. I, I, they don't care. He's not one of them. I mean, the best case, the best way for us to think about it is maybe America goes to war with China, North Korea, something like that, and we, we lost, and, and now we're occupied, and, and the Chinese soldier who's the enemy soldier has come up to you, and, and you know the other Chinese soldiers have not been kind to your friends or to your family, and he walks up to you and your friends, and he goes, hey, I've got a guy who works for me at home, and he's paralyzed, and he's suffering terribly. Most of us would go, yeah, too bad, man. Sorry. I don't know what you want me to do. I'm not going to say this because you have the power, but I really don't care. And some of us might go, that's justice. I'm glad that's happening. That was maybe some of the disciples' feelings when he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Verse 7, Jesus, and he said to him, I'll come and heal him. Now, hey, there's a whole other message here. Jesus, in spite of what would not have been the, the normal way of life for another, any Jewish teacher or the Jewish people, Jesus basically says, hey, I will go out of my way. I'll stop what I was doing. I was, they weren't looking like Jesus wasn't walking around. Hey, y'all see any centurions that have like a sick servant somewhere? Oh, look, we found one. He was going about his business in his day. And Jesus says, hey, even though you don't deserve it, even though you're not my people, even though we have no connection, I'll stop what I'm doing. Jesus didn't, even, Jesus didn't even ask, well, how far away is it? Jesus said, I'll go. I have the opportunity to meet a need. I'll stop what I'm doing. I'll go meet a need. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other time that, that's there. Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. But look at this. This is where it starts to get interesting. But the centurion replied in verse 8, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Basically what he said, he said, Jesus, I've been watching. I've been assigned to this area and I've seen you come and go. I've seen what you do. I know that there's something special going on here. Jesus, you don't, you don't have to come to my house. In fact, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm worthy to have someone like you walk into my house. And then he says this in verse 9. He sees the commonality that he and Jesus have. He says, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says, Jesus, I get it. I'm a man of authority. I've got 100 guys. They do whatever I say. I, I come bearing the, the power of Rome. I've got the full backing of the, of the most powerful country in the world. I get authority. I have such power. It's not because I'm bigger or stronger or smarter. It's because I have the backing of a higher power in Rome that when I look at my soldiers, I say, hey, you go do that and you go do that. And they go, sir, yes, sir. And they go and do it. And what he says is, Jesus, I realize from watching you that you have an authority. You've got something behind you that is powerful as well. That you have the ability to say to sickness and disease, you get on up out of here and sickness and disease disappears. I get it. I see that you have power and authority that comes from something bigger than any of us understand because I live that too. Now get this. this. This is what's incredible. Verse 10. doesn't happen anywhere else in the Gospels. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. It's the only time that Greek word is used to talk about Jesus. When Jesus heard this confession, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The guy was not an obedient Jew. The guy did, probably didn't know the Ten Commandments. The guy was probably worshiping at pagan temples. because he didn't, he had, His worldview hadn't shifted to the point to walk away from paganism and, and, and mythology to come to the one true God. But he's in this process because he's what he's seen and his faith is what's, what, what's on stage. Not his obedience, nothing else. It's his faith that says, Jesus, I, I don't know how it all works. I haven't even said that I'm, I'm following Yahweh, the God of the Jews. But here's what I know. There's something happening, and you have the power of something behind you. I know the Jews call it God, and I, I know it so much. Not only, I, I trust it in such a way that I'm not just saying, hey, come, I want to see it happen. Come to my house. I want to see if you can really do it. My faith is already at the level that I know that if you say sickness be gone, paralysis be done, that my servant at home with you nowhere around will get up and be healed that's the kind of faith I have in what I've seen you do. And Jesus marvels. And he says, guys, we're supposed to get it. It's, it's our people that know the stories of the Red Sea parting. It's our people that know the stories of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how, how God called fire down and, and wiped out the, the offering. It's our people that know the story of a little kid named David who took on Goliath and with the power of God beat him. We're the, ones that know, we're the ones that should be like, we understand the power of God. But we're not living, Israelites, we're not living by the faith that we should. But here's a guy, a pagan, who doesn't know anything. And his amount of faith, and a God that he doesn't even know personally, 
has amazed me. That tells us something. That God is interested in us expanding our faith. Because in the expansion of our faith comes spiritual growth. Love this passage. So what do we do? If the foundation of how much you grow in your relationship with God is based on your trust in Him, what do we do? Well, we're going to try to answer that question over the next five weeks as we talk about growing spiritually. But let me just give you some, some thoughts about just, just faith in general and growing. And if you're taking notes, you might write these down. Again, I'm going to give them to your students, but it would be fantastic if you can start talking about some of these action steps. It might be how you help disciple your teenager to get them to take some steps forward. Here's what we know about trust and, and what we know about faith. Trust or faith comes with time. Right? I mean, here's, here's the, I won't tell your kids this. This is just youth ministry principle. You guys will get this. I have friends that are in youth ministry and stuff like that. And they have like problems. We're trying to do this in youth ministry in our community. It doesn't work. And, they're, and they, they get mad. And they go like, how, can, how, how do you get to do like just about anything you want? They get like mad. They're like, you, you could change your whole program. You can do anything. And, and like, parents and like teenagers and your, your small group ministers go, okay. It's because I've been here 15 years. That's it. There's nothing special about it. Y'all don't even know if I'm good at what I do or not. It's been 15 years. <laughs> right? I could be the worst youth minister in town. You have no clue because I've been here so long. You know, I, get, I hadn't fired him yet. I guess, I guess we go along. Sure. Time. It's time in. It builds trust. People go, okay, I'll let you take my kids to camp. I'll let you take my kids to Poland because, or London or whatever, because you've done it like seven other times and you've never lost any kids. So I think, you know, we've, we've seen the time. We can, we can trust. Time in. So if your faith is going to grow, you've got to get time in. And so we say this all the time. Not rocking size. You're going to hear me say it a hundred times. You're going to hear me say it a hundred more times. You've got to have time in the Word. You've got to have time. It has to become foundational for you that says, you know what, I, I want my faith to grow, and my faith won't grow unless I'm spending time with God. The more time you spend, the more your faith grows. That's why I put those devotionals back there. That's why we're begging you this year to, 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 to grab some of those devotions. I printed a whole bunch more on that resource table. And to take one for each of your kids and, and, and for you to go, hey, as a family, we're going to read the Word. It's August. We've got a couple days left in August. We're going to read a psalm every day. We're going to talk about it. We'll set up a group text, and we'll share what we're talking about. We'll talk about it at dinner. But, but kids, we're going to lead you to know the Word because you need time with the Lord because the more time you have, the more your faith grows. That being said, this is going to sound like pastor speak, but it's true. Making a commitment to the local church. Saying, you know what? I'm going to be in the flow of where God is moving under, under biblical teaching, when, when the church is going out and serving, I'm going to serve. All of those things, that time in with the local church, that time in your personal life, that are, those are all things that, that cause faith to start to expand. You take a person that's read the Bible every day for three or four years, and you compare them, stand them side by side with a person who's read the Bible three or four times during those three or four years, you'll see a person, you'll see the difference in the faith that they have. One will be much bigger. Happens that way. So time, trust comes with time. Trust also comes with seeing. You, you need some people. This is a rhetorical question, but who, who is it in your life that has big faith? 
like, like mind-blowing faith, like centurion-level faith. If you don't have anybody like that, you need to find some people like that. I hope you'll find them in your small groups. Hope you, hope you'll find them along the way. The more you, you're around those people and you start seeing what God is doing in their life, you start hearing. Well, what'll happen is this, that they'll start talking about something and they'll go, and the Lord did this and the Lord did that. And, and, and you'll hear and you'll see for the first time a new perspective. And you'll go, oh man, I, I, I just, I never even realized that God was doing that in your life. Man, that is so good. As they tell the story and they begin to unpack it and they start to, you watch them start to make decisions. You're hanging around a friend. I used the illustration earlier. You know, you have a friend that goes, hey, the Lord's called us to give our car away to somebody. And, and you go, what? That's, that's not faith. That's crazy. But they have a big faith, and that's the type of person in your life, and they go, no. And then you watch it happen, and then you watch God show up, and the next thing you know, they've got a, this other car, and you're like, well, how did you get that car? And they tell some crazy faith story. I hear them all the time. And you're like, what? That really happened after you did that? Yeah, that God like showed up. And all of a sudden, your faith starts to grow because you're seeing it in other people's. So I got this guy. His name is Jerome Smith. He's a He's like 65 years old youth minister. He's like a hero. I mean, like grandkids. It could be in his youth ministry. Uh, he's down in, in, in Tallowood in Houston. Jerome was sitting around with a bunch of us youth ministers, and we were all talking about youth ministry and what we're doing. And he said, guys, we did. He's kind of like the elder statesman. He said, he said, guys, we did this thing that was really amazing. We, we went on a Holy Spirit-led mission trip. And we went, well, we do that too. Like, Right? What are you saying? He said, no, here's what we did. We had no plan. And we went, what? And he said, now we trained. We had kids ready. We had kids trained. We did how to share your faith. But what we did is we all showed up, and we knew the mission trip was going to be this date to that date. It was like a seven-day trip, and we knew that on the last day, we were going we to congregate back at Camp Eagle in Kerrville, Texas. That's where we were going to, you got to be in Camp Eagle on this day. But on day one of the mission trip, they all had mission teams, five or six kids with an adult or two adults, and they were in, in one vehicle. Their vehicle in the back had camping gear. They had coolers. They had a set amount of budget money. And what we said is on day one of the mission trip, and, they said, and he said, we'd been praying for months ahead of time, preparation. He said on day one, they went, where do we sense the Holy Spirit leading us today? And we're all like, what? And he said, yeah. He said, we had one group, they were praying there at Houston, they said, hey, let's drive to San Antonio, we have one of our youth workers in the hospital, let's go visit him. And they started talking about praying, they started praying along the way, God, we're driving to San Antonio, if you want to change that, change it, we're headed to San Antonio, because we sense that's where you're leading us. They drove to San Antonio, they started, uh, met the youth worker, prayed over him, they got out, and somebody, and one of the kids said this, guys, this sounds weird, but I feel like the Lord's calling us to the Grand Canyon. And they went, all right. And drove to Arizona. Got to the Grand Canyon. And there's a church there doing a vacation Bible school who had way more kids show up for the vacation Bible school than they had people to run the vacation Bible school. A little Baptist church. And here comes six teenagers up to the Baptist church and said, hey, we've been praying. We feel like God's called us to the Grand Canyon. We don't know why, but we're here to serve. Is there, is there anything that's going on in the life of your church that we can plug in with? And they went, are you serious? And they said, yeah. And they said, we've been praying about this vacation Bible school because we don't want to know, we don't know what to do because we are overwhelmed with kids and we don't have enough staff to run it. Would you guys be willing to, to help us with, with our vacation Bible school? And they said, yeah. How long does it last? 
Well, it's going to be three or four days, or I remember how many days it was. And they went, so we could do that day, that day, that day, drive back, and we'd be at Camp Eagle on time. And we're all sitting there. He's telling us a story. And we're like, shut up. And we're all like, we're going to do that. And we're like, there's no way anybody's buying into that idea. <laughs> I'm not even sure I buy into that idea. Like, I want to. I'm like, I'm like type A planner. Like, I need a, I need a schedule. I, I can't have a yap that says 8 o'clock leave on Monday, 12 o'clock come back on Sunday, and the yap's blank in between. I start shaking. Like, I went... But I love being around Jerome because I hear these stories and it helps my faith grow to go, you know what, God, I can trust you. I don't have to plan it all out myself. God, I can step back and when things don't go like I think that they should go to know that you're in control. It's seeing other people that grows my faith. And then here's the third thing. So again, so surround yourself with some people. If you don't have a big faith person, you need to find your Jerome. The third thing is this. Trust comes with experience. Listen. If you've been coming to church for a while, if you've been in a church for a while, if you've read your Bible, there, there's probably some time that the Lord has leaned into you and you've sensed God calling you, you need to do this. You need to let this go. You need to talk to this person. You need to go here. You need to, to switch this. You need to transition that. You need to do this with your kids. You need to do this with your spouse. You need to reconcile this relationship. And, and, and over, there's been multiple times where God's leaned in and you, you sense the Holy Spirit going, you need to do this. It's been a little bit of conviction. It's a sermon that somebody preached. And you went, man, I need to do that. Oh, but it's going to be uncomfortable. I don't know how it's going to go. Can't reconcile with that person. Might have to lower my pride. I'm not, I'm not orient, putting my finances in this different orientation and doing this with my finances. There's no way I can survive. I'm not telling my kids we're going to do this because they're, they're, going to, they're, going to go, they're going to think I'm crazy. I'm not talking to that person at lunch about Jesus. I don't, they're like Buddhist. I don't even know what a Buddhist person believes. I'm not starting a faith conversation. I don't even know how to con- talk with them. But trust comes with experience. You know what happens? When you finally say yes because you go, you know what, God, I want a big faith. I don't have it now. In fact, I'm scared about this little thing that you've called me to do, but I'm going to do this little thing. And you say yes, that faith muscle grows. And the next time you do something God tells you to do, something small, your faith muscle grows. And what happens is you start experiencing, not just hearing other people's stories, not just time in with God that grows you up. You start seeing God show up in some things that you used to be afraid of. You see him move, and all of a sudden you start growing this big faith. And when your foundation is faith-based, it's a big faith, you start growing spiritually. That's kind of our, our key phrase for this week. It's going to be in the app. If you've ever been to New York, go to Manhattan. Manhattan is almost solid granite below it. Hard, hard rock. And it's got these skyscrapers, 75-story skyscrapers, 100-story skyscrapers that, that line that view. There's a thing, and I'm not a constructional engineer or something like that. Some of you guys might know and be able to explain this a little better. My understanding is that they have a thing that's called, they're called piles, they take steel beams and they, they put them down sometimes 25 feet into the granite. And, and the skyscrapers lay on that foundation. Not just of the granite, but the steel beams that are dug two and a half stories down into the granite so that the weight of that skyscraper can be supported and it can stand. That 
that foundation's not solid, if those beams don't go deep enough, the structure of that building becomes unsafe. They might have to tear it down before it falls down to great expense. The foundations matter. If you've ever been in a house where the foundation's cracking or shifting, you know foundations matter. Start getting cracks in the walls and things like that. Well, the foundation of your faith and the foundation of your, teen, uh, 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 your teenagers, of their spiritual growth, is found in, do I trust God? How big is my faith? How far will I go when God says go? So the next six weeks, we're going to start talking about how do I grow up? We want you, beg, desire, and praying for you to lead your teenagers to grow up. Not because, some of, I mean, that's not like, that really sounds like you got a bunch of immature teenagers. I'm not saying that. We've had 27 high schoolers serve, pay money to serve our sister. We have some incredible kids. We got some kids that, that are leading parents, you know, in, in reality in some places. But we want your kids to continue to grow up. But we have to set pace. We've got to grow up. And the faster we grow, the bigger we grow, the better it is for our kids.